Hello and welcome to QBD Book Club, the podcast. I'm Victoria Carthew and I love it when October rolls around because I get to speak to Geoffrey Archer because he always releases a new William Warwick novel. The latest is Trader's Gate uh, and it was wonderful to catch up with him. Have a listen. Good evening for me and good morning to you, sir. Congratulations on Trader's Gate. Thank you very much, Victoria. It's great to be on your show. Before we get into the book and all that happens in this fabulous heist, uh, I know our, our your fans and our viewers love to know what you're up to because uh, life has very much returned to normal a lot for you in the last couple of years and you're able to get back to your usual patterns and writing and doing all the things that you love to do. Well, uh, at the age of 83, <laughs> become somewhat limited, but my life, to be honest, Victoria, concentrates on the book, so I'm enjoying it so much at the moment. And I, I, I know the next three books, including the one you've got in your hand, Traitor's Gate, uh, I know the next three books. So I'm pretty occupied at the moment. See, that's quite the plan, isn't it? That you know the next three books. Well done. Well, uh, I got a very big idea for the next book. And I, I, I couldn't resist it. It's actually been with me for about six or seven years. But oh, wow. I'm now finally going to get down in January and write it. Exciting. Well, this is book six, of course, for, for William Warwick and all of the uh, gang of uh, merry men and women. Uh, and for those of you that, that haven't perhaps followed, for those that haven't followed all the way through, um, it has been quite a ride. And you've, you've given us this wonderful progression, haven't you, of his career and his life and all of the capers. Well, it was a strange situation. Mary and I, after COVID, went on a trip on a Viking liner and I sat next to a man, or was it a woman, who said, I can tell you your next story. Well, <laughs> you know, soup course hadn't arrived, so I wasn't still. So I did my <laughs> usual and said, have you murdered your wife? And he said, no. I said, well, get in touch when you have. <laughs> and he then told me, it got worse, it got worse, Victoria. He then told me, how to steal the crown jewels. Well, every schoolboy, schoolgirl knows that uh, the crown jewels, there's only ever been one attempt on the crown jewels in 1671 by Colonel Blood, and he was caught while he was yes. still in the tower. So I thought this is going to get worse. And then they told me they were a member of the royal household. Just happening to be on the cruise liner next to you. Yes, just happened to be on a cruise liner next to me. And uh, they told me the story and I didn't sleep that night. I mean, it was so, all of us have missed it. It's so obvious, but it still required detailed research, particularly on the timing, to make sure the reader felt it was credible. Absolutely. And I love, I do love you mentioned Colonel Blood and, and that attempt back in 1671, because you actually tie that old story quite beautifully into, into this story as well. So we get a lot of history lessons along the way, as always, uh, in your books. But there is a real thing, isn't there? No matter where you're from, the Crown Jewels have this kind of mystique and mystery, and everyone wonders about them. Well, ironically, when I set the book out, of course, uh, Queen Elizabeth was on the throne. And I had assumed she'd lived to 100, <laughs> and therefore uh, uh, the whole thing of stealing the crown would be fairly irrelevant. Um, I actually handed the book in by the time she died. And, uh, of course, um, the crown was suddenly on the front page of every paper. 
yes, yes. And the story of the royal royal household and indeed the Tower of London was on all the front pages. And the book had already been finished. I mean, people said to me, Go, you wrote that quickly, Jeffrey. And I said, No, I didn't. <laughs> I wrote it two years ago. Isn't that often the way, though, because you're so immersed in what you do and very much you, you know so many people and you know so many of these different lives that it, it, it kind of stands to reason that you would write something and then it would happen? Well, I've been fortunate. You're quite right, Victoria. I've been fortunate in my lifetime to have met some fascinating people and worked with some fascinating and interesting people. And yes, that does get into the book. You can't work for Margaret Thatcher for 11 years and yes. not something, not a part of it, not get in the book. You can't work with <laughs> Princess Diana as yes. her auctioneer and part of it not get into the book. So your kind comments about sprinklings of history, though I do try very hard not to, to, to just drop it in, not to, here I am, aren't I clever? I'm going to tell you something. No, I think that's unforgivable. You have to slip it in so the reader just enjoys it, but moves on with the story. And you do that so brilliantly. Um, pennies is another thing that springs to mind when you talk about that. There are so many little ways that you've done that throughout this book. But it's also um, also quite, you pick so many iconic things. You mentioned um, Princess Diana, of course, she was in the last book, and then this one with the, with the crown jewels. But you're all about authenticity because you had a wonderful project, didn't you, while you in the last 18 months that you you can see if people turn have to take a look at your website an incredible project that you did in conjunction with the book yes it was a project you're quite right because when i got back to london i had to convince myself it was possible that a very clever man with a very clever team could actually steal the 1937 state imperial crown worth three <laughs> worth three billion uh, so i had to do several trips from buckingham palace to the tower of london and from the tower of london to the house of lords and then back to find the, the perfect route and get the story to be credible but the biggest challenge was at the end of the first draft i realized i needed a replica of the crown Otherwise, the reader might say, I don't believe that. So I went to the a, a truly great craftsman and jeweler in Hatton Garden, Alan Gard, and said, can you produce me the James V State Imperial Crown? <laughs> we went down to the tower together and studied it. And he came back two weeks later and said, I think I can do it. And 500 hours later, and 17 months later, he delivered it. And you've dedicated, in the book, of course, that front page, you've, you've, you've given him a little dedication there, which he absolutely deserves, because it was obviously so important. The crown he built, created, made for you is, is just beautiful. It's magnificent. And when this is all over... <coughs> when this is all over i'm going to have i'm going to sell it for charity and it'll go to a children's home christie's are going to sell it uh online and it and all the money will go to a children's home the first ever children's hospital for the mind and the body which will be built in cambridge 
Fantastic, Jeffrey. And that is fantastic. And, you know, I thought it was really interesting. So much of your work, we know your great knowledge of art, uh, and there's been so many stories throughout the William Warwick series about art and copies and fakes and who might and whatnot. And I thought it was quite lovely that then we've moved on to another area in jewellery and something as grand as a crown. And then how good can a copy be? Because can it fool some people? Yes, you're quite right, of course. That was moving on from Rembrandt, moving <laughs> on from Titian and Rubens and saying, I'm going to do a story about the real crown. Um, you talked about the research that you did in terms of finding the right route, which way would the crown and the jewels travel if it was going to be taken to and from. And that was wonderful, to be honest, as a reader and as a foreigner, to, to feel like you kind of got this trip around London and, and you took us to all of the sites. Yes, because I had to decide, would I go by boat on the Thames? Would I use the tube system? Would I get a taxi? Would I dump the car and walk? I mean, it, there were so many challenges put to me. Uh, and in the end, I got a taxi driver to advise me. I got in a cab and said, I want to go to from Buckingham Palace to the Tower of London. And I want you to make it as long as you can, which pleased him. <laughs> and of course, he picked the route with the most zebra crossings, the most traffic lights, and uh, the most zebra and the most roundabouts. And he showed me how you could slow down at a light, slow down at a roundabout, slow down at a zebra crossing. I said, and he got me six minutes and twenty seconds. And once I got six minutes and 20 seconds in the bag, I knew I could do it. Oh, my goodness. And does this cab driver know, hello, this is Jeffrey Archer researching a novel? Or did he just think he was a strange man going to pay him lots of extra money to go somewhere slowly? Quite a few of the taxi drivers re recognise me. So that, uh, uh, and tease me, of course. So we're, we're doing some research, are we, Jeffrey? And <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is absolutely fantastic. Um, in terms of your knowledge, I mean, I love that the, that part of the research came from a cab driver because so much of what you do in terms of royal protection and policing, you, of course, have wonderful researchers you've worked with for a long time. Yes. In the case of William Warwick, I have a, a chief superintendent retired who was head of the murder squad and a detective sergeant, Michelle Roycroft, who worked in the arts and antique squad. And they re when I finished the first, second or third draft, and I do 14 drafts, when I finished the first, second or third draft, I then give it to them and say, pick up the mistakes. And of course, as two experienced policemen, they say, well, we couldn't do that, or we could do that, or we, we could do that, though, and we could change that. And they pick up little things that, an expert would write to me and say, you got that wrong, Jeffrey. So I'm mm -hmm. lucky to have two absolute experts advising me. And in terms of the, the title, I mean, I think a lot of us would, would be surprised, given all of the heinous crimes that be, can be committed these days, that actually it's called Traders Gate, which is one of the biggest, worst words you can use, because it is still such an extraordinary crime to try and steal the crown jewels. Yes. Uh, and that, of course, when the man or the woman who told me this uh, my immediate reaction was, whatever you're going to tell me, uh, 
you're wasting my time. And it wasn't until she'd, she'd found, he'd found the one slip that no one has noticed that made it all possible. Which is almost how it happens in the book, you know, that the, the, the way it unravels as well. But we don't start with that crown jewels. We start with our favourite characters, with Miles, with Booth, with Warwick, with, you know, all of these other wonderful characters. And there's a bit of a journey in the book, isn't there, before we get to this big heist, because they have to keep kind of undoing each other and uh, getting their vendettas against each other, don't You're they? You're typical, Victoria. Typical, 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 Victoria. You like Miles Faulkner, who's the biggest... No, I don't. I'm a, I, I like the choir boy. <laughs> he's a very clever man, of course, and yes. he's not. He's uh, he thinks these things out very carefully. And once William and William is sadly William Warwick is in charge of transporting the crown jewels from the tower to Buckingham Palace and from Buckingham Palace to the tower. So his career is in a, on a knife edge when it's discovered they have to return the crown but they've got a fake one. It is. It's such a, a wonderful way to get there. I, I almost felt as though um, so much of this book is you've, you've really expanded our insight into all of the characters. They're all, you know, the gang, be they, be they on the good or the, or the wrong side of the law. They're all such so integral to this now, aren't they? Because their own stories are what makes this really tick along. I think characters in a book are very important. You must love or hate the characters. You must care about the characters. Many a book, and I'm sure you're the same, Victoria, one's about a third of the way through, and you wouldn't kill you wouldn't care if they all killed each other. <laughs> but so you've got to care about the characters. And, yes. and that all my life uh, that's been the case right from the days of Cain and Abel 40 years ago. Uh it's the character that matters. Of course the storytelling's important, of course the twists are important, of course making you turn the page is important. But when you finish the book, you've got to care about the people you've read. I remember a couple of years ago asking you when uh, when James Buchanan first came along and uh, would we get to see him again? So thanks for bringing him back. <laughs> yes, whenever I get rid of someone or think of getting rid of someone, the public write and say, please bring them back. And you and, and I very nearly killed someone, which would have made it impossible. But no, no, Miles Faulkner survives. <laughs> we, um, you couldn't have, the, the, there are, Two really, you know, stand out strong females in the book, and they couldn't be more different, could they? Beth, and then of course, of course, Christina. They couldn't be more polar opposite. Well, Beth, of course, is uh, based on my wife. Yes. But all my women in my books are strong women who have careers, want to do things. My wife is currently chairman of the Science Museum of Great Britain, the first woman ever to chair a national gallery or museum. So I and I worked 11 years with Margaret Thatcher and my mother was an incredibly strong character. She was a, a local councillor at, at our home in, when it wasn't fashionable for women to go into politics. So I've lived with strong women all my life and I like writing about them. And, and Christina is always living on the edge and it's always all about the money, isn't it? And it's quite I, I love how you really push the boundaries with her with what she could or could not get away with. Well, now, Victoria, you'll have to wait for the next book because there's going to be a twist you haven't thought of. Ooh, ooh, okay, okay. Concerning Indeed. Christina. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. Um, I have to say, as, as a parent of uh, 
well, my kids are a little bit older now, but those those wonderful children in your book are impossibly too perfect, too good to be true. Well, they're based on my grandchildren. I yes. say to I say to would be authors, for God's sake, write about what you know about, write about your grandchildren, write about the job you're in. But some people say to me, my job is boring, and I say, well, maybe people won't find it boring. A woman came to me and said, it's not fair, Jeffrey, because you know so many famous people and you've had such an amazing life. Of course you can write a novel. I haven't had that chance. I said, what do you do? And she said, I work in a hairdresser. I said, oh. you'll get more stories in a hairdresser than I'll get in my lifetime. <laughs> but you've got to do what's near you and close to you. Absolutely. And, and I know this is often asked of you, but you would have so many friends or people that come to you and wonder if characters are written about them. But do people come and ask you, could you perhaps write about me or slot me into a book somewhere? Every, every, every day someone comes with the fact they want to write a book. And I always explain, anyone can write a book. If you're well-educated and well-read, you can write a book. That's got no connection with telling a story. Mm -hmm. Telling a story is a God-given gift. Writing, as I say, any educated, well-read person can write, but can you make them turn the page? And that's exactly what you do in Traders Gate. I feel like you had a lot of fun with this as well. Like it's it's it is kind of that, that the pace because that when the crime ultimately happens, it's so fast-paced, isn't it? Because they're trying to fix things. So that would have been, I imagine, quite good fun to write. Oh, yes. You're very lucky if you actually have fun because a writing you do on your own is damned hard work. But this one, Traitor's Gate, has been tremendous fun. And uh, even I wouldn't have guessed the ending. Oh, that's good because, yeah, you do you do keep people wondering until the very end, which is exactly the point of it. And then we will see um, William Warwick again because you've always talked about your plan for him, haven't you, all the way through all of this series? Yes. William is now a superintendent. He has to become a chief superintendent, a commander, and then commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. So I have to live, I'm 83, I have to live three more years to make sure that he gets to become commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. I've taken him through constable, sergeant, inspector, chief inspector, superintendent, up to now chief superintendent, but three more to go. I love it. And is he is he one of your favourite characters that you've written ever? Yes, he's uh, he's based on the very charming and very able John Sutherland, who advises me, who was a fine Metropolitan policeman and try and in the end had to resign uh, because of one murder too many. He had a collapse, a mental collapse, and had to resign, which was sad because he was a very very fine policeman. And I feel like that's interesting you say that because even at the heart of this, the they're good people. You know that we know they're characters, and you're writing a story. But you can just feel at the heart of this, Beth and, and William are both very good people. Yes, that is difficult. You're quite right, uh, and each person must do it their own way, uh, and pray that when they you pick up the book, you've got them. I always say, uh, it's the public who decide. I love it. Well, I was at the, I was uh, 
at the shops the other day and I saw a lady walking past and she had two copies sitting in her trolley and, oh. she, and I said to her, is that, is that the fact she said, I've been waiting for this? And I think that's the lovely thing is we know that this time each year we get another one of these and you entertain us and it's just such a, a fantastic read. So thank you again for another great William Warwick novel and we look forward to the next three and many, many more after that. Thank you very much indeed, Victoria. Thanks for your company on QBD Book Club, the podcast. Back soon with more author insights.